This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. These episodes are made possible by the Future of Truth, a project at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, generously funded by the University of Connecticut and the Henry Luce Foundation. The episode you're about to listen to is part of a series on Seeing Truth, a museum exhibit and subset of the Future of Truth project that seeks to challenge audiences to see art, science, and truth anew in this political moment. In these episodes, Seeing Truth project leader and art history professor Alexis L. Boylan interviews artists and academics about the relationship between art and science, the role of museums in the production of knowledge, and how we use the visual to make meaning. Hello, everybody. My name is Alexis Boylan, and I am the um, curator of Seeing Truth. And I am here today with two of my esteemed and funny and brilliant colleagues from the University of Connecticut to talk about um, science and art and collecting and the meaning of life. Um, just some small topics um, uh, for the next half hour. And I do want to get, um, I'll remind everybody that this series, um, this web series and the uh, affiliated podcast um, are all sponsored by the very generous um, uh, support of the Luce Foundation and also the Provost Office at the University of Connecticut, um, all through the University of Connecticut's Humanities Institute. So, um, um, let's get started. So I um, hate doing introductions, so I force everybody to introduce themselves. Also because I think it is fascinating in and of itself about how people describe themselves. So I'm going to just go in the weird order that my Zoom is in and start off with um, Bernard. Do you want, who are you? What do you do? What, what's going on? <laughs> okay, well, um, I, I, I look at myself as a migrant, uh, both uh, in, in terms of, you know, physical space and intellectually. Uh, I, I grew up in, in Western Europe with the idea I would become a chef. And uh, uh, here I am X number of years later, uh, you know, in the Americas and studying plants and, and a group of organisms that are less charismatic. Uh, even transparent to most uh, to the average eye. And I'm just intrigued by this. So I work on on, I'm an evolutionary biologist in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, and I'm interested in, um, in biodiversity and the history that uh, gave rise to it. So my, my work goes into reconstructing 500 million years of evolution and also in discovering species uh, that we have today. And, and I particularly enjoy, besides my research and academic work, also outreach with nature works walks, whether it's in Patagonia or in, in Connecticut. Okay, fantastic. Eric, do you want to introduce yourself? Love to. Um, I think of myself as a son, a husband, a father in that order. 
that, that's chronological, I should note. Um, and and somewhere, somewhere in there, I became entranced with the mysteries of marine life. Um, and in particular, I, I settled on fish. And that's because, at least in the water, they're ever-present, they're elusive, they're beautiful, they're complicated. And so that's been the focus of my research or questions that, uh, ways that we interrogate fish. And so we, we test hypotheses about how they function, both as like individual animals and groups, populations of them, uh, in response to challenges to such as changes in salinity, climate change effects like drought, uh, and also harvest by humans because we do have an intimate relationship with fish. I also work with people who study humans in their responses to fish. So we test hypotheses about how anglers and people who fish for fun and for their own personal consumption react to regulations and how many fish they can keep and what have you. And just like fish, people are beautiful and complicated and ever present and they can be elusive when one is asking questions about how they behave and why. So that's it. Fascinating. I think it's so interesting. You're both biologists and yet you are both secretly anthropologists as well. I'm just going to mm -hmm. say that. that mm -hmm. I, that's what I pulled from your introduction mm -hmm. is that you are um, biologists um, uh, who are secretly uh, anthropologists on the side. Um, uh, so I have to say that I came to know you both when I came to visit the biodiversity research collection at the University of Connecticut. And I think that this is one of the, has been one of the very um, fun aspects of this project for me is to get to visit collections and get to meet people who, even though we're all at the same university, um, uh, we, I have not, I had not met either of you before. I did not have the opportunity to see the biodiversity research collection, which is terribly impressive and very cool and does amazing work. So I guess I wanted to know um, uh, a little bit about what you two do at the biodiversity um, research collection. And um, just to tell us a little bit about what it is and how it functions at the University of Connecticut and sort of what what then your relationship is to the collection. Okay, so I think I'll, I'll, I'll start. And uh, so the Biodiversity Research Collection is part of the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. And uh, it, it's the, the name uh, applies to an integrated or combined collection that basically resulted from the merger or the confluence of several independent, uh, you know, collections zoological, botanical, paleobotanical, that were even housed in different components of the uh, uh, university. And under Yukon 2000, uh, these were merged. And um, we, and, and I should say that some of these collections started, you know, in the late 1800s when Yukon was still the store's agricultural college. So there was a lot of history that's being captured in these uh, uh, collections, not just biological, but also you know, the history of expertise at UConn through, uh, through time. And so the collection has about uh, a million specimen, depending on how, how you count. Um, and uh, they, they cover, uh, you know, quite a diversity that we might be talking about uh, later. So my role with the collection is uh, that I serve as director of the integrated uh, facility. So in, in part, I maintain cohesiveness within the collection if we want. Uh, and we also you know, develop you know, strategic plans, what should be our emphasis, you know, how should we interact with, with the public. But I'm also uh, trying to be the liaison or the advocate uh, you know, of the collection to uh, to the administration and and the outside uh, outside world, 
And in addition to that, I'm, I'm also currently serving as director of the herbarium uh, as we're awaiting the hiring of a new uh, cryptogamic or, or uh, you know, herbarium director. Uh, and for that, uh, it's kind of the same role. So we have a collections manager. We we see the acquisition and the processing of uh, you know specimens. So we we mentor and guide undergraduates. We offer tours to you know nearly two thousand uh, undergraduates uh, every year, I think. And uh, and engage in strategies. You know what should we do? What should be our emphasis? What should be our service to the state, to the university, to the community of scholars? Eric. So um, I, I want to talk, just uh, pick up on one point that Bernard made and amplify it a little bit, which is that, you know, we have these titles for our affiliation with the collection, but, and it's part of our service to the department and the university. Uh, we, we are not paid for these roles exactly. This represents, although it is a service and an important one, we're, we're essentially um, expert volunteers. That are that are contributing our efforts. So I think that's an important thing to note. So I'm my title is I'm director of the vertebrate collections and I'm curator of the fish. So the vertebrate collections are not only the fish, but then amphibians such as frogs, reptiles such as lizards and snakes and and birds who are really reptiles, and uh, and mammals. And I work with a collections manager, and together we ensure that the specimens are well taken care of because we are trying to uh, be custodians of these specimens for their future use. Um, we provide access to, uh, of, to of scholars, provide scholars access to the specimens, data on the specimens, and, and, uh, and we do some of our own research on them. Um, a, a big thing that we're involved with is education about the collections to undergraduates and providing the graduate students uh, access so they can do their own research and outreach. Um, a quick example of the teaching I have uh, this semester, a group of first year undergraduates, so freshmen and a few sophomores, and it's in a class called Scales, Feathers, Bones, and Leaves. And we're exploring how the, uh, the past and the present and possible futures are revealed through a close study of the plant and animal specimens. So I actually want to, I'm going to go off script. We have a script, and so I'm going off a bit. Um, as I threatened, I would. And as people who watch the series know that I do constantly. I'm actually fascinated at, so first of all, Eric, I really appreciate you noting this question of labor. Um, uh, because how your collection is structured is radically different, of course, from the way an art collection. Um, and again, we are, just for people who don't know on campus, we are literally like across the street from one another. We might as well be in some ways in like different states. It, it just, it, it's it's literally a road um, and not even a particularly heavily traveled one, but it feels like a different, you know, that, that one is the more science focused part of campus and one is um, more of a humanities focused part of campus. But one of the things I'm interested in is that art museums have curators and they um, might teach um, they might have academic affiliations, but very rarely is the director or the curator of a museum um, also primarily research focused in a professorial kind of way. And so I'm very interested, you used, both of you used the word director, curator, and then somebody else who's a collection manager. So a collections manager in my world would be a registrar. And that person is super important, but they are not curators. Right. And they have entirely different training. 
Um, and curators, in fact, are very different, you know, that, that for an art historian, I, you know, most of us pick a path and we decide to go into curatorial work or professorial work. And, you know, I am somebody who does both, but I do both, but my curatorial work counts as my research. So what's a curator to you guys? Like, it just actually sounds like this is your teaching lab. So what's the curatorial part? Do you think that it's um, good that you have, that because of your tie to students, you have then this responsibility to the collection or, or is this just sort of the way it has evolved and then that's the way it is kind of thing? You wanna field this first, Bernard? <laughs> I, I think it's better if I start and then you can, you know, fill in all the all the holes. Uh, so I, I I would say that you know my essence, my my work is very collections based, and so I'm very much aware of what a collection is, what its role is, what its significance is, what it needs, right. and in in that sense, because I'm a primary user of collections, I can also be a primary advocate, whether it is you know to the outside world, and so. It will be hard for me to imagine that the collection would be administered by somebody who does not actively use the the uh, the collection. And in terms of the collection manager, uh, we we are fortunate. Uh, we so these are you know they have a PhD in in the field. They also have done collection based research, but they might be more interested in in the curation of specimens, in the processing, making sure that the collections are well-preserved, that the data are made accessible to the broader community. And in our case, we are very fortunate that each one of our collection managers is very excited in mentoring and training students, uh, which is critically important nowadays, uh, as was recently highlighted in a report by the National Academy of Science, which is we have all these collections, we have been worrying about infrastructure, but we have not thought about the intellectual infrastructure, which is to train people to preserve them. And, uh, and, and so it's a great combination complementarity, I think, between, you know, directors and curators or collections managers, whatever the title is that we want to use. Uh, and, and so I would say in, in our collection, we, we form a great team. I mean, I like it. I'm involved in teaching. The collections managers are uh, Eric comes with a different, you know, course. We participate. Uh, we 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 offer tours, um, you know. So, yeah. Eric, I, I would I would just say just add to that that our 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 duties, our responsibilities are hopelessly and um, uh, and uh, in a lovely way entangled. So that the roles of collections manager, curator, and director in our case blend into one another substantially. Um, there's a spectrum there in terms of looking outward, setting priorities versus looking inward and uh, taking care of specimens, but, uh, but, they, but they blend into one another so much that they're really not hard lines of, of delineation among those different roles. And this is just the way we do it here. I won't claim that the way we do it, it is all representative of other R1 institutions. And I don't know, I never had training in this. I just discovered when I got here that I became curator of the fishes. It just happened. I've worked <laughs> in other collections, but I never actually have asked other curators. Let's say at the, I did work at the California Academy of Sciences in their fish collection. And I never really found out when I was working with a curator there what that meant. Mm -hmm. And 
I'd love to ask them now. I should. I'm getting more and more interested in how collections work. And so it'd be a very interesting line of inquiry. Well, and I, I, I mean, I, I poke at that because I think that the, my next line of questioning is sort of about knowledge building and about this sort of idea of building a collection around the need to teach, but also around the need to create bodies to do with which to do research both now and in the future. Because of course, a collection always exists in this temporal, you're here now, but you're always thinking about 10 years, 20 years, like 50 years, like what is it that, because you don't want to be the person who 50 years from now, people are like, well, if only Bernard had made different decisions, we would have all this information, you know, like that, that you want to be the person who looked ahead, saw it, and then helped sort of frame this. So I guess my question is, First of all, I want you to talk to the non-scientists in the group, because um, I will admit that when I went there, I sort of had this moment of pause where y'all started talking about wet samples and dry samples. And I was like, I don't really know what that is. And then also like taxidermy. And then y'all have a, a polar bear rug um, that is uh, a real polar bear. And uh, uh, so can you actually help us sort of talk about where, what is a dry sample? What is a wet sample? How many samples you need to start creating knowledge like to, that is sort of real and not hypothetical or, you know, what starts to feel like a sample that can be uh, uh, for scholarly purposes, knowledge making. And then I'm also just interested, and, and this is a question that ties into the arts. Artists are very um, both invigorated and very worried about AI and 3D printing and what that's going to mean for knowledge making going forward. And I was just sort of wondering, um, in terms of thinking about the future, is do you imagine that these kinds of collections are going to be maintained or is this technology going to render this sort of collecting irrelevant? So that's a lot of questions. You know what, let's flip it. Eric, go first, please. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Um, uh. <laughs> well, I, I would like I would like to take on the uh, the AI and the 3D part, and right. and I th th this may produce some awkwardness later, but I, I found that I found that line of questioning. I hadn't really been aware of the degree to which people in the humanities and and um and and art historians feel threatened by this. I feel intrigued, and yet I'd like to talk about its limitations. So I'd say the the ability to create like a facsimile of specimens and, and distribute those facsimiles to anyone interested has can be terrifically helpful for lots of things. So as an example of something we're already doing, the herbarium has this amazing database of scanned specimens. They're extremely detailed. Anybody can use them. You could bring up a picture of one of our specimens and see the little hairs on the leaves of these plants. Now, this is only and so you could you could study the morphology of the leaves of this plant in a really satisfying way. Of course, that's only a 2D representation, but nowadays collections have developed the ability to do 3D representations. And I, it's, I'm, I'm sure they're already doing it, being able to build from that 
um, using a, a 3D printer, an actual model of it. So in that way, you know, you, we wouldn't, um, if a scholar wanted to examine a specimen, its form, we wouldn't need to send them the specimen. They wouldn't need to travel to us. We could just, you know, digitally send it to them. And that would be, that would, that would be, uh, that would have some advantages. And, and likewise, I mean, AI has some interesting applications in rendering the form of an organism. You know, there the AI is used to generate to create these um, idealized human faces from millions of examples stored in digital form. I, I find that fascinating, but you have to tell the program what you're looking for. You're you're ultimately shaping the representation, and by some criterion of perfection that you're aiming for, and that's bound to be useful for some kinds of inquiry. But it's quite different from the purpose of collections, which is to represent the real objects and to contain the variability and celebrate it. So kind of reminds me of this argument that we can replace animal research by using computer programs, which is something we hear. Mm -hmm. Programs are great for extending what we know. We use them all the time here in the sciences to extend our ability to the scope of our inquiry, but they're an important way limited by what we know already. They can't venture far into discoveries about natural process in a fundamentally new way. So for that, we need data that we have collected ourselves anew. Eric, I love that phrase, it can extend what we know. Um, because I think this is such a question that, that again, sort of, are you creating anything new or are you in fact just um, uh, reassembling knowledge that has already been created? So again, like what are the sort of boundaries of these technologies in terms of actually creating new knowledge. Um, uh, so that's really that's really interesting and helpful. And I hope I didn't overstate. I I are, where art historians or human, you know, I think there is a lot of anxiety about AI, but there's always historically anxiety about technology. So that is sort of like, of course. Um, but I think, uh, and then I think there's also many people who are always like zealots and who are imagining, you know, a kind of nirvana of the future with technology. And that that's also a constant historically. So Bernard, do you want to jump in? Yes, I mean, um, when when I introduce new visitors to to the collection, you know, they say, "What is it?" and uh, and I say, "Well, you imagine that the collection is a like a library, but instead of having books, we have you know specimens." And uh, you know, I like to make the analogy and say, "But unlike a traditional library with books, our books don't have the final chapter written yet." Right. So every time, and so moving on, uh, building on what you just said, to some extent, I'm looking forward to changes in technology, you know, that allow us to look at a specimen differently. When I was a, an undergraduate or a graduate student, I would not have imagined that we could use, you know, available collection for DNA extraction, you know, for chemical extraction. And, and so we don't know what tomorrow is going to allow us to do and, and look at these specimens and build on what we already know. And I think that's an important part. You don't have to go out again and recollect. You can just continue building knowledge, you know, that on, on these specimens. And, and, and that's very, uh, you know, very important. So, yeah. I'll just pull it back to art history. There's, you know, people talk a lot about uh, actual works of art, so paintings. 
as having a kind of aura that that they are not reproduced that you know that you can see a reproduction of a painting and it will be lovely and you can put a poster on the wall and that has tremendous power but that some objects simply have an aura about them that is that the physicality matters um so I guess I also sort of wanted to get in this roundabout question about sort of how having a collection of samples with diversity actually shifts the knowledge and research. I um, I want to uh, respond first to a previous point you 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 made about you know the, the, there is more than the actual specimen and already. I can show you beautiful butterflies from the collection, and I can show you pictures of the butterflies, and you may appreciate their beauty. But if you see the actual specimen, the individual, you will have a different, you know, there, there will be an emotional response, which is different than looking at a picture. And, um, you, you know, we, it, it's basically biological organisms looking at other biological organisms, and there is clearly an emotion that 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 is there. And I think that that emotional reaction or bond is important whether uh, when we talk about do we need to build the collection how do we justify it you know what are you know the uh, what is the value what are the costs of, of doing it um in but then your second question was what <laughs> i already forgot <laughs> it was about uh, you know the diversity of specimens yeah. yeah and i don't know if if eric wants to to talk about that and well, well, sure. I'd, I'd actually start uh, again from the perspective of the individual object. Um, when Bernard and I talk about this, we like to think about kind of this amazing paradox that we're dealing with a dead organism that's seemingly inert. And, and yet the possibilities are infinite. It's dynamic in that sense, because what we get out of working with the object, not a picture of it, has infinite possibilities. These collections, the individual specimens in the collections, have answers to questions we haven't thought of yet. And there are an infinite number of those. So there's, a, there's an infinity of possibilities in these seemingly inert objects. Um, and then, so uh, with, with respect to the issue of why we need variability, uh, we'll, we'll get to this later if, we, if, we, if, if you get to the question about what is truth to us, but there's something fundamentally important about variability, the organic world, Organic evolution, organic process depends fundamentally on variability. And just going back to you know, some of the founding principles of our ecological and evolutionary science, the creative process of evolution, that's the process we call natural selection, depends fundamentally on variability. You have to have variability among organisms and then a selection process for evolutionary change to occur. We have to be able to represent that variability. So in response to your question about what makes a collection, certainly having a, a single representative of a species is better than having no representative of the species. Having two is better than one, especially if they've been collected in different places. It's great to have a male and a female if you're talking about animals or a plant for that matter that was collected in the same place. And it goes on and on. And we are perhaps subject to an infinite regress where we need to have more of everything at all occasions, but then of course that's impossible. Right. So there's the struggle. Right, right. So I'm gonna actually, I, I wanna pivot to this question, uh, um, Eric, cause I think you just sort of, the, the sort of, 
you weren't talking about it, but this sort of idea of like infinite variability, which we have all lived through in the immediate time period of the variability of how viruses operate. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and I was actually sort of wondering as two people who, I mean, I think particularly because of your investments in a collection and the way that a collection is so tied to this idea of producing knowledge that is actionable, right? That has meaning that, that sort of, there has been, I don't think that I'm overstating it by saying science has had a real kick in the teeth with this whole COVID thing Um, because of a much longer anti-intellectual conversation, I would say, and a much longer way in which this idea of if science shifts or if an idea changes that somehow it just shows, see, nothing can be trusted, everything is irrelevant, they don't know anything anyhow. So I was sort of wondering if you sort of, what has been your feeling as scientists who run a collection that is focused on data collection and change? What has your response been to the way in which scientific authorities that are so rooted in process, but also so rooted in the necessary need to change ideas and to have new knowledge that changes arguments? How has this whole public conversation affected how you teach and what you do? <laughs> do you want to go or should I go first? <laughs> well, I, I'll, I'll, um, I'll, 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 I'll nudge things forward a little bit and then, and then give Bernard plenty of scope in which to continue. So um, w- this has long been an issue. You're, you're absolutely right that we were challenged by things like the epidemic now uh, recently um, and that this always causes scientists to reflect on the extent to which they're seen as valuable and that the scientific method is seen as valuable. Alexis, that's always been the case. Yes. Since, since, science, since science was quote unquote invented, right. because so much of what humans view the world through is through values. And, and, and while science is shaped, the, the, the process of inquiry can, is certainly shaped by societal values. Values are not what scientists do. And we're not producing values and we're not, we're not telling people what to think. We're providing data. We tell them about the evidence. Dr. Fauci stuck to the evidence. And while his star rose and fall to some extent and it rose again, um, having the evidence is essential. You've got to have the data. That's what's essential. If you're talking about the authority of scientists, all we can do is say, you got to know how the world works if you want to survive. Yeah, I, you know, the the difficulty I think is, and I, I don't know if it is our responsibility to explain better how the scientific you know process actually works, and 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 explain that you should not be alarmed if conclusions change, if they if the new conclusions are based on better data, on more data, right? If you were to 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 describe the human species, but I only give you two specimens, you would come up with a different perception than if I gave you a hundred from across the world. And and so, you know, data matter and 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 why do we get data? Do you want to make a decision if you only have one reference point? If you have only had one experience in your life, do you want to make every subsequent decision based on that one experience? Or is it better to, you know, look for advice and get more information and you know data 
are, are important, are essential. But then there was also a, a, a theoretical kind of, you know, bagage, if you want. How do you interpret the data? What are the assumptions that you make? And, and nobody has the patience to hear, how do we get to the conclusion? We just want to hear the conclusions. And then if the conclusions change, we come to our own conclusion that they don't mean anything because they have changed. You know, it's like when you get you, you buy a new household equipment who reads the, the the manual from beginning to end. You just want it to work. Right. And you only want it to work the way you expect it to work. And so I think we have a greater responsibility in, in trying to explain how does this work and, and don't be alarmed if there is a change. It might be a good sign. If anything, I think if scientists change their mind, it means that they are self-critical or can be. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that that's very important. It's, it's almost it should be reassuring. Well, know. it is interesting. I mean, it, it's, it's, an, it's a non-scientific question about how, how can change, how can we actually change the way people deal with change and with being self-critical um, and, and, and also just, yeah, that, that um, I mean, I think that the sort of, I want it to work the way I want it to work. Um, uh, but again, if we were maybe all of us, and I will just say me too, right? Like in the classroom, if we were all better at making sort of stories about knowledge, about a knowledge that is now and a knowledge that will perhaps shift, that will shift. It's not a perhaps, it will. Um, uh, it is, and, and it is the question of like, where does that start and where does that end? And how do we participate in that? I'm going to pivot us because um, I know Bernard, um, we're running, Bernard has to run off to class to do his, you know, um, uh, his duty. Um, uh, so I want to quickly pivot and ask you guys instigator items. Um, I made you look at the instigator items. What did you think? It, it's your, it's sort of, I like to think it a little bit of like some of the detritus of, um, uh, uh, and Eric, I actually included, um, we found a fantastic um, image of fish. Um, I don't know if you got a chance to look at that, but but uh, I was thinking about you um, uh, in the addition of our, our fish image. Um, uh, any instigator items that you um, that were provocative to you? All right, I'll, I'll go first. I, I saw the fish. It did not provoke me. Uh, okay. I, I appreciated it, but 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 I, I thought in, instead I would talk a little bit about first about the videos of field expeditions because mm -hmm. those those attract me. Yeah. Um, I had the opportunity to live in, in intimate contact with a, a natural system, a coral reef down in islands in the Caribbean. Uh, I lived with people that were indigenous to the region. This was in grad school. Uh, the people are the Kunayala of Panama. And um, I, I have uh, respect or even love for the process of, of discovery uh, in that sense, um, the rigors of doing field work. Um, and what, what I would, having watched those videos portion of them, I'd be interested to know now of written records. And that would be not only of the white Western scientists that were there, but also what the locals thought and what the locals learned because the practice of collecting has changed substantially since even those days in the 1920s. And nowadays participation, the locals would be much deeper and much more reciprocal than the Mongolian camel drivers, for instance, represented in one of those videos. Right. Um, so I don't know, I could talk about another, but let's go to Bernard and then if time will go back to me. And I will actually just say one of the things that's been actually really exciting about this project and being able to work with the American Natural History Museum is that their interests and energies have often turned to that as well, to sort of mm -hmm. turn to 
who are the people in the background? Often, hmm. actually, it is indigenous communities or people from surrounding communities that are often pulled into doing some of the filming. Right. Um, because so much of these expedition is, is also like theater, like, you know, that you're watching, you know, the discovery of dinosaur. I mean, that was all that's that's not how they actually discovered anything. They set that up and filmed it and that sort of thing. So um, and also, I have to say, I mean, you know, one of the films I wanted to show is a film that has actually been re-edited by the indigenous community because so much of the material was a violation of their space and their resources and also their religious and spiritual ideas. Mm. So I think that's also becoming a really interesting part of it. But mm -hmm. Bernard, what, what about you? Anything, anything pique your interest? Well, there were a couple of things that really piqued my interest, but if, uh, and, and I'm still torn. I've both of them written down yet. And I'm not sure which one I'm gonna choose, but, um, uh, so, you know, the blazing, uh, the trail to the distant past, uh, you know, with, yes. with the uh, paleontologist uh, and, and the dinosaur kind of in the sky and spirit of the dinosaur looking over the paleontologist yeah. as they do their work. I hope you both feel that about your plants and animals, like that they're watching you. Uh, yes. <laughs> no, it, you know, it, it, it's uh, it's the idea of doing field work, of of being on a journey to to discover. And even if you see something that you have seen before, I feel like you always see something different. I find something very therapeutic, even for me to crawl in my yard in stores. When I see a moss that I haven't seen before, uh, it is transforming my mood for the day. Let's put it this way. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you, your imagination goes wild, you know, you, you, you wonder what's happening and, and where does it come from? I mean, to me, there were lots of questions. I look at something and in, in Patagonia, uh, so I've been working some, uh, doing some work on, on, in the Cape Horn region uh, where, where there is quite some diversity. And for most people, it's transparent. You know, these are foreign organisms. We don't see them. They're just green. You know, they, they look some painting on, on the rocks or the trees. And, and so we, with Chilean colleagues, we we developed uh, you know the, this ecotourism program of changing uh, ecotourism with a hand lens, changing the lenses through which you see the world, mm -hmm. and it's amazing. Um, you know, you you walk with people in the forest, or you take kids on a playground, you take them to a tree, you give them a hand lens, and you know they have to put it close to their eye, and suddenly it changes mm -hmm. what they see. And uh, it, it is a journey, like a discovery, and and so when I see this. Uh, I, I, you know, the uh, the item with, with the paleontologist to me it triggers, you know, adventure, excitement, curiosity, discovery, and uh, so only positive thoughts. Um, uh, but also sharing is very important in that, as you know. Anyway. No, I uh, uh, I love that that painting. Um, uh, it's a painting that was made by an illustrator that works for the Natural History Museum, and then it was made into an illustration for the cover of um, uh, Natural History, which is the magazine that came out of there. Um, but um, it's a great image, um, and uh, yeah, fabulous. All right, now a super easy concluding question. Each of you tell me one thing, only one. You don't get a bunch. This is the way people cheat on this question. Tell me one thing that you know is true and tell me why you know it's true. One truth. One. One truth is that variability begets creativity. For me as an ecologist and evolutionary biologist, creation depends fundamentally on variability. Okay. 
I would say that more data is better, more data strengthens your conclusion, if even if your conclusion is not strong. Okay. I love it. Thank you both. This has been a fabulous conversation. I again want to thank my fabulous and generous colleagues um, uh, for taking some time to talk with me today. And um, again, I hope I will see everybody at Seeing Truth. It opens um, January 19th, um, uh, 2023. It's coming up. It was far away and now it's coming up um, where we will see actually some pieces from um, uh, the collection that Eric and Bernard work with um, uh, matched with pieces of contemporary art and um, in conversation as I think hopefully as vibrant and variable and creative as the one we've had today. Thank you both very much. Thank, Thank you, Alexis. Take yep. care. You've been listening to a special Seeing Truth episode of the Why We Argue podcast, Future of Truth edition. Many thanks to Toby Napolitano at the University of California, Merced, who handles our sound. And thanks to our sponsors, the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, the Henry Luce Foundation, and Vanderbilt University. The Why We Argue podcast is a proud member of the New Books Network.